Work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. This is George Macharco, host of DC Entrepreneur here on WERA 96.7 FM. I'm in the studio today with Kate Glantz. Kate is the founder and CEO of Heartfleet, and she's the DC Director of Entrepreneur Initiatives with Seedspot. Thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Kate, talk to me about your experience in being a founder and starting Heartfully, which uh, for those that don't know, Heartfully is a wedding gift registry for charitable giving. So I founded Heartfully in October 2014. I had been working in government for several years and was just feeling a little stagnant. I didn't know anything about tech or entrepreneurship, you know, MVP, API. These were not acronyms I was familiar with. So I did what any uh, individual does in 2014 to today is I Googled how to start a startup. And uh, Google told me that I should attend a startup weekend and I was like, what's a startup weekend? Uh, Googled that. And fortunately, there was a startup weekend happening in D.C. maybe three weeks after that. And I went and I knew that nobody in that room of about 120 people had to be nice to me. No one had to validate my crazy idea that I had been toying with, you know, for years just in the back of my mind. And I thought this would be a really great way to test uh, if the idea for Heartfully had legs. So I went. I stood on stage I pitched it for the first time ever, um, and amazingly, this awesome team formed around me. We powered through the weekend, and I ended up winning first place. So that, to me, was really the catalyst that kicked everything off, and I would encourage anyone who's been tinkering with an idea to attend something like Startup Weekend. If you're not familiar with what it is, it's a 54-hour startup competition where you come together with peers across your community, and you just build cool stuff. So that was like truly day one of Heartfully was at that event. So now you served in the Peace Corps, you're a returned Peace Corps volunteer. Can you tell me how your experience living overseas and working overseas has informed what Heartfully does? Sure. I'll start by saying that I really believe Peace Corps is the original lean startup. You are just plopped into this new culture and community and you don't know which way is up and you just keep iterating to see what works and then expanding on that. So I think a lot of, you know, my resilience and, and grit and ability to just muddle through and get it done comes from my Peace Corps service. But the idea specifically uh, came one day when I was in town. So let me set the stage. I was in a tiny village about 12 hours from the capital. I had no electricity, no running water, no toilets. And, you know, things were very simple. And at the same time, back home, my friends were starting to get married, sending, you know, out their wedding announcements. And it was this true kind of sense of whiplash straddling these two worlds. And so I remember I was in town about an hour from my village checking my email and clicking through a wedding registry. And I was like, wow, like monogram handheld sushi plates. I wish, you know, why can't I register for toilets so my children and, the, you know, my students can have like a safe place to go to the bathroom? This is like crazy. I wish I truly wish I could have a wedding registry for toilets. And that was like no joke how the idea was born. I ended up writing um, a grant uh, to build latrines in our at our primary school. And I presented it to my community back home is like, hey, like 20 bucks, that's a bag of cement. 
$100, that's a pallet of bricks. And the, you know, divvying it out into like real and tangible items just resonated with people in a way that saying I need to build latrines in my like African village just didn't resonate. And so I, I knew I had something there. Um, but I wasn't ready to really dive in. I just was like, wow, I raised this money super fast and built some great latrines. And then I went back to my Peace Corps service. But over the years, the idea kind of just kept swirling and growing. So how do you choose the uh, the nonprofits, the NGOs and partners that you work with, with Heartfully? The first 10 um, came to me through my networks. I was just like, guys, trust me. <laughs> you know me. Just go with this. And they said, okay. And so that was, you know, as any founder um, must do is sort of use your own village around you to get started. And from there, um, you know, we inst- we uh, created uh, an application. There's a pipeline to apply. We vet you. We have conversations. We review your 990s, all that boring stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, once we launched with these 10 partners um, and started getting press for sort of the novelty of what we were doing, people started coming to us. And so... The supply side has really never been a challenge. What the challenge was, I didn't have the bandwidth as a team of, you know, two at the time to be onboarding and really thoughtfully vetting these these organizations. And that to me is so important as someone coming from international development is that you really partner with the right uh, nonprofits um, who are doing their work with integrity and transparency. And so about a year in, I was really fortunate to do a deal with Global Giving. They're um, one of the largest nonprofits that sort of aggregates other nonprofits um, and vets them. And so almost overnight, we grew from about 50 nonprofits to over 1,000. And so the supply side is totally set. <laughs> um, and that was, I, you know, I always encourage in the early days when either human resources or capital are tight that you partner can you talk to me about how the registry works? How does a couple that's getting married uh, decide what kind of projects they want to fund? Sure. So you would go to our site, um, visit our project gallery, and you can filter by location, by issue that you care about, or you can just search for keywords. And uh, what you essentially do is select one or two or three projects that you really care about. So uh, locally, you know, we're partnered with Arlington Free Clinic, uh, Martha's Table, End Street Village, some really good nonprofits. And you're not just sending $50 to Martha's Table. You're providing, you know, you're spending $25 to make sure a kid has school lunch every day for a week. So these are very tangible items. It's You're not actually buying those items. They're donations. Um, but it's a way to kind of understand what you're doing in honor of this couple. Um, and so, yeah, so the couple chooses the nonprofits. They create a beautiful wedding registry, just a few minutes. It's free. And then um, they send their guests to, to the gift page just as they would send them to their Macy's or Crate and Barrel registry. Um, and then the coolest part, in my opinion, is after the wedding, we send an impact update to everyone who donated and, the, you know, of course, the couple that really shows what they've done and the legacy they've begun to build in honor of their marriage. And can the couples actually travel to see the work that they've done? Yeah, they could. I mean, it's a lot more feasible in D.C. than, say, Sudan. But um, I, there, there hasn't, you know, because we're in like over 100 countries on five continents, a lot of the places where couples are supporting projects aren't necessarily uh, honeymoon locales, but technically they could visit. And do you find that a lot of uh, the people that use the service, that they're also people that have served overseas internationally through Peace Corps or some other type of service? So, yeah, I would say a good percentage, but not 
overwhelming. Like it's it's uh, the demographic we're finding are urban millennials who, you know, just have they like to, you know, voice their values um, with their wallets. And so or, you know, like they they want to take an active role in contributing to the world. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they come from international development. They're just mindful people. And the trend is that almost all of our couples, at least anecdotally from what I know, um, already live together. They have what they need. And not only do they not want uh, gravy boats in China, uh, they don't have room for it in their one-bedroom apartments in you know expensive cities that they live in. And so that's a huge demographic for us. And then what also um, is increasingly um, happening that, I, that I'm seeing on the site is that second marriage. These are individuals who already did the big wedding and they're older and they don't want a wedding registry at all, but people are so happy for them that they want to do something in their honor. And so this creates just an awesome solution um, that makes everyone happy. So talk to me about this concept here. It reminds me a little bit of microfinance. Would you argue that it's it's kind of like crowdfunding uh, development projects? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's not microfinance in the sense that they're not getting a return. Mm-hmm. Um, like these are donations. Yeah. But it's definitely crowdfunding. I mean, I think you the, there's a champion, which is the couple. And I should also note that we've expanded beyond weddings. You know, we see we have the site available uh, for birthdays, for anniversaries, really whatever celebration that you are, you know, celebrating. Yeah, I saw the <laughs> um, Valentine's but, Day promotion. Yeah, had. and then we have the holiday campaigns. Mm-hmm. The Valentine's Day campaign was really special this year. Um, so, yeah, no, I definitely think it's crowdfunding. You know, you have the champion. They're soliciting their peers to contribute. And um, instead of them getting the money, it's going to the nonprofit of their choice. And I really believe that this is the way celebration um, and fundraising will sort of be married, no pun intended, um, in the future. And I think nonprofits are just starting to tap into the power of crowdfunding, you know, where it's been so successful um, for individuals crowdfunding for their own needs. Uh, I think nonprofits are typically always slow to the take on things like this just because it's uh, there's a lot of bureaucracy and typically limited resources. Or, yeah, whether like understaffed or mm-hmm. they just have a hard time like with the fundraising portion because right. that's just varying amounts of uh, budget each year. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's move on now. Let's talk about your your work. You you've, uh, you were named to the fellowship of the Tory Birch Foundation. Yeah. Uh, can you talk to me about your work there? So I was actually a fellow with the Tory Birch Foundation in their first um, class, and it was awesome. So they were helping me um, as an entrepreneur. Tory Birch has an amazing story for uh, people who don't know. She's a fashion mogul, runs a multi-billion-dollar fashion empire, and she's always been really passionate about elevating women. Um, to achieve their dreams. And so she created, uh, through her foundation, a fellowship that brought 10 women entrepreneurs across the country and across many different industries together, um, connected us with really elite mentors and um, kind of resources to help grow and scale our businesses, as well as an education grant, which is awesome. Because typically as an entrepreneur, if you have any spare dollars, you're not using it to better yourself. You're using it to better your company. So I appreciated that the money was spent to really enrich my own development um, to be a better leader. And yeah, so over the course of the year, we met mostly over the phone. um, And I'm truly grateful for them. They also are partners in the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Fellowship. And so through their endorsement, I was able to go through that program as well. Huge opportunity for um, businesses, typically businesses who are, who have been around for two years um, so that you can really understand like how to make your business better um, by looking backward. And 
I am so grateful. I mean, it was honestly like an MBA in a semester. I'm so grateful to that program. Sounds like an exciting experience. And so it sounds like you're also giving back now, too, with your work with SeedSpot. Exactly. So no shame in the game. I ran out of capital, um, as most entrepreneurs do. And I looked, you know, I was able to raise more, but I I took a hard look at the market and, and thought, you know, this isn't the right time. I think, you know, I'm very proud that Heartfully is at the, uh, you know, we sort of helped create this category along with a few other um, competitors in the space. And I have no doubt that there will be a winner in this space in the next five years. But I underestimated the cost um, to change behavior. And, you know, we got far and we did great and I learned a lot. But what I recognized was Heartfully wasn't going to be the winner today. And so fortunately, it's automated. It still runs. It's alive. I love it. I maintain it. Um, But I looked at this community that I had um, really become part of and that had embraced me and that um, really brought me up in the startup world and I didn't want to walk away from it. And I didn't have the interest or capacity to start a new startup. So I thought that I could add a lot of value and really feel fulfilled at the ecosystem level. And so SeedSpot is this amazing incubator um, for social enterprise that was launched in Phoenix, Arizona five years ago. They just continue to churn out awesome entrepreneurs who most of whom are still in business today. Um, I think it's something like 82% of SeedSpot graduates still uh, are running their businesses. So when they came to DC, 82%. I'll throw some other cool stats at you. 45% Mm -hmm. of all SeedSpot founders are women and Um, Sorry, 49% and 45% are minority founders. So it's really this incubator that focuses on inclusive entrepreneurship um, around social enterprise. So when they came to D.C., I was like, oh, hi, guys, like, pick me. Uh, They were looking for a director of entrepreneur initiatives to really launch the program here. And it worked out. And it's been an awesome semester of sorts, um, supporting nine entrepreneurs to get their companies off the ground. So your role is directly working with these entrepreneurs? It is. I, I kind of I tell people that I am equal parts spirit guide, den mother, and cat herder of these individuals. Um, they're founders of, uh, of all ages, backgrounds, um, and across all industries. And week over week for the last 15 weeks, we've really dove deep into our curriculum, brought in content experts, paired them with mentors, put them in front of investors and members of the media. Uh, They pitched their businesses in front of a crowd of about 500 people at the Warner Theater. And it was this amazing culminating event. I was so like my heart was bursting from the wings watching them. And it it was really special to transition from my own, you know, baby start slash startup um, and and help these other entrepreneurs birth their own. If you think about it, there with any kind of idea that becomes a business, there's a gestation period. You know, <laughs> you have to figure out how it's going to develop in the real world, and then there's that time when it's actually released into yep. the world, and then you just have to help it grow. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, the terrible twos are a real thing. I mean, oh, we could take this analogy for sure. a very long time. <laughs> sure. So, um, you've been very uh, candid about your experience with with failure as an entrepreneur. Oh, absolutely, failure is growth. I mean, that like full stop there in startup world, if you were to just keep winning, you wouldn't know what you were doing right, especially the first time around. And so um, 
every time I failed, I evaluated. You know, you just do an audit personally, uh, professionally, and the, the decisions you made and the people you were working with, and you look at what went wrong. And if you can correct that each time, you're not going to make that mistake again. And so I think if you, for whatever reason, get very lucky, like that's awesome. Um, but you're potentially building a house of cards that's all going to fall down. And so I think that's why you hear investors uh, and just kind of seasoned entrepreneurs saying that it's great, like you're, it's great when your first company fails because you're going to be so much um, just more world weary and prepared for the next one. And that's definitely not the MO in corporate America. I think right. they could use more of it. Um, but yeah, and I, I think I'll also kind of from another uh, lens, I was always very vulnerable in the journey because I, you know, I knew I had a great idea and I knew I could get it done, but I needed help. And if you aren't coachable and you don't let people know that you need them, they're not going to help you. And so it really does take a village. And mm -hmm. People, I don't know, I think people respect and appreciate vulnerability and authenticity far more than, you know, the I'm crushing it, man, uh, ethos that a lot of founders project and, you know, to each their own. Um, and I don't, you know, and I don't think being vulnerable is being weak. I think that it's actually showing strength, that you're confident enough in who you are that you can ask for help. That's great. So let's talk about vulnerability for just a moment. So I think a lot of our listeners will probably be familiar with the Brene Brown TEDx talk. How do you think we can learn from vulnerability? Like how do you, how do we become better people by just saying, "Hey, look, we don't know something." Because I think a lot of people have trouble asking for help. Definitely. For a lot of reasons, too. I think there's an expectation as CEO or as founder that you have to have all the answers and if you show any sign of weakness that people won't want to invest in you or join your rocket ship. And I think it's, you know, honestly, just the opposite. If you as you, if you can be a human, <laughs> then people want to people will buy in and people will support you. And I guess an example would be a few years ago, very early on into my journey, I believed I had to always be crushing it, or at least projecting it. And it's very lonely and very isolating. And I think it can lead to uh, burnout. But what happened was I got on stage to pitch at this competition and 30 seconds into my pitch, I just went blank, just messed up so badly. It was mortifying. And, you know, it wasn't super high stakes. Maybe only 50 people were in the room. And I could have decided to never talk about it again and just, like, put it in the box and, you know, put it under the bed. But I decided to write a, a Facebook post about my epic failure. And more people, I mean, within hours, hundreds of people had responded. And this is just a Facebook post and say, you know, thank you. Same thing happened to me. This makes me, you know, want to try something I'm scared of because what's the worst that can happen? And just um, other people kind of just tuning in that otherwise wouldn't. And so that was my first lesson in what it is to be vulnerable and to be a human. Because um, if you don't ask for help, you're not going to get better. And that's like as, a, as an entrepreneur and as a founder – my ego is less important than the health and success of my company. So whatever it takes to figure it out, even if it is showing weakness, you know, I think it's worth it for the end game of a healthy business. That's great. I, I think there's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from that. And I, I think there is kind of this need for a lot of entrepreneurs that are just starting out to have to go by that fake it until you make it ethos. So maybe the word of, of the wise here is maybe not to fake it so much, but show that, you know, hey, like anyone else, you know, when you're starting out, 
kind of winging it, but you're learning on the on the job, and you're getting to the point where you actually will know the answers to some of those questions that are thrown at you in the early stages of your business. Yeah, it's a balance, I'll say, though. Like, definitely project confidence. You know, you have to know the right rooms to be vulnerable, and that goes to, to say, like, you need to find your people. And so hang out with other founders, with people, whoever can empathize with what you're going through and you can be straight with, and hopefully those are people who are your peers and also who are who have more experience than you. Um, but I think you need to have that tribe because you do need to project confidence as a leader. Um, but it's a balance. So uh, can you talk to me about what you think makes the DC tech scene unique among other tech hubs in the United States? I love the DC tech scene. It's awesome, like, right? All day, every day. It's <laughs> my, I mean, I don't know other scenes as well, but mm-hmm. what I so appreciate about founders and, and just people in DC tech is that they are solving big problems and they're not just creating an app to get you addicted to, you know, like Candy Crush is kind of the classic example. Like these are people who typically come from other industries, um, sometimes government, sometimes places like the World Bank or, or schools where they just can't solve what they need to solve um, in that space. And so they come in, they, so they basically leverage technology to solve their problems. And these are smart people. These are dedicated people. These are hardworking people. And they're not necessarily in it to flip a business really fast and sell it, you know, like to just build something um, with vanity metrics and get rid of it. I really think the people in this community are tackling massive problems and opportunities and i respect them so much do you think there's a focus on sustainability when people are starting their startups here because i think a lot of times people only think about sustainability whenever it comes to an enterprise that needs to perpetuate itself do you think there's a more long-term approach with the dc tech scene or is it similar to other technology hubs like silicon valley i mean i speaking to the very early stage i think it's just about staying alive so there's what I do think differentiates the scene here is that people typically have pretty strong whys, like why they're doing this. And so the vision is far reaching. Um, but like any cash strapped early stage founder, you're just executing and trying to find something that works or a model that works. So I do think that it's because these are mission driven and I don't necessarily mean like charitable businesses, but, you know, most of the businesses here have a, have a pretty strong mission um, that there is that longer term picture. I can't say if they're actually creating thoughtful strategies in the early days, but I, I think it it's there broadly. Um, so I want you to put on your futurist hat right now and tell me about what kind of technologies you think are going to be groundbreaking in the next five to 10 years. I think the idea of smart cities or the kind of the trend of smart cities is going to continue um, strongly. Uh, like there's so much attention, especially in DC around what it means to build a, st- a smart city and and it touches so many sectors. So autonomous vehicles are going to be huge and uh, change everything uh, in terms of how we plan cities and how we spend time and even thinking about that extra leisure time when you might not be driving, what are you doing in that time? You know, are you upskilling? Are you shopping? Like there's this whole... Hopefully it's a podcast. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, But there's this whole, you know, there'll be more time to do things. And I think just the technology that's going into creating autonomous vehicles and, and autonomous other things will create new technologies that make things more efficient. And so I am really passionate about urban planning, uh, especially for social welfare and seeing more equitable cities um, that serve everyone. And I think that 
Um, if you unpack the idea of a smart city, you're looking at energy, you're looking at um, infrastructure, you're looking at transportation, real estate, I mean, food and agriculture. It's all it's all there. So I'm really excited to also see cities get invested in their future. Um, can you just tell me about your personal philosophy about giving back and why you think it's so important to kind of look at altruism and not just making a profit as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, from a business perspective, I think that consumers are going to expect a double bottom line. I mean, look at what's happening with Uber, the delete Uber campaign, you know, like there's like you don't have to be a charity or even have a vibrant CSR, uh, you know, arm, but like don't be evil. And so I think giving back in like the corporate sense just makes or you know, like being just having integrity and values um, is good business sense. I think personally, it's just uh, I really believe in lifting as you climb. So empowering other women to pursue their dreams, be it entrepreneurship or leadership or, or really anything is super important to me. Um, and I think giving back is not necessarily it doesn't have to be monetary. Um, and you don't need to be a senior executive to be able to add value. Like I actually think that there's a lot of value in learning and being mentored from someone just a few steps ahead of you than someone who's sort of sunsetting in their career. And so, you know, by no means am I super advanced in my career, but like nothing gives me greater joy than sitting down with college students or or like very early stage entrepreneurs and being like, this is what I did and this is my experience and how can I help you and how can I introduce you to someone that you would really like to meet and so I think there are so many ways to give and it's incredibly fulfilling Um, and the best way to grow your network is to be helpful like never leave a conversation without saying how can I be helpful it's a good thing to to emphasize too because I think that really is you know the essence of entrepreneurship is how can you add value to that situation you know that line of business that society, that neighborhood, whatever it is. Thank you for dropping by the studio today. And for more information, where can they find out about Heartfully and Seedspot? Uh, visit heartful.ly to uh, learn more about Heartfully and celebrate your next milestone with it. Um, and Seedspot is seedspot.org. We have an evening uh, program kicking off this fall for part-time for entrepreneurs who are sort of starting to dip their toe into the waters and want a little guidance. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you. All right. We'll catch you next time here on DC Entrepreneur. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode. And thanks for listening.